Vatican. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Lisa. And guess what time it is? It's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And we're having the most special day here because it's Mimi Hoop's birthday. Yay! Okay, and I got Mimi to wear, uh, we're wearing birthday hats. We have birthday horn blowers. We got birthday everything. And I love birthdays. And I actually have a birthday present for Mimi. I'm saying that right, right, Mimi? Mimi. Mimi. Um, like so we're going to we're gonna open that later. Um, but first, um, I want to tell you about um, our Radio Free Brooklyn uh, party, rap party, season one rap party and fundraiser. Um, this has been like the first season. And just personally, this has been one of the best experiences of my life. Um, I can't believe that like Tom Tenney and Rob Pritchard put this shit together and got it organized. I don't know. It's amazing how they fucking did that and got all these wonderful people involved. And we have really made some transformative radio. I believe I believe that in my, my heart and soul. And um, the most exciting thing is that we're having this fundraiser, and it's at my very, very favorite bar. I'm not kidding. You can go there. It's Pine Box Rock Shop, and you can go there and ask them if I'm not there drunk at the bar every single night. <laughs> well, no, tr- the truth is um, I go there almost every day for a, a, a cocktail with my dog because they, they let me – they're nice to me. Anyway, um, so I just want to say thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting us by coming to our season one rap party and fundraiser on Friday, October 23rd at 8 p.m. at the Pine Box Rock Shop, 12 Grattan Street in Bushwick, right next to the Morgan L. Stop. This event will be emceed by Gabriel St. Evanson, host of Radio Free Brooklyn's electric e- eclectic, eclectic, eclectic ear, and feature performances by Doll Parts, Brooklyn's premier, premier Dolly Parton tribute band, singer-songwriter Miss, Mississippi Cotton, burlesque by Miss Legs Malone. She's hot. She's very hot. DJ sets by uh, Radio Free Brooklyn hosts and a special screening of Lofty Dreams, a new Bushwick-based web series. There will also be raffles, prizes, and swag giveaways. And the first 25 people to arrive will receive a free special gift. Admission is pay what you can, but any amount will help keep Radio Free Brooklyn on the air. Once again... That's Friday, October 23rd at 8 p.m. at Pine Box Rock Shop in Brooklyn. Hope to see you there. I will definitely be there, and I'm going to be inviting all my guests that have been on the show, including Mimi. Do you think maybe you'd come, Mimi? It sounds great. Yeah? I'd love to come. Oh, really? That would be wonderful because I, I know I want to see you again after this. And uh, it would be nice to uh, – and also the the people that uh, I'm going to be inviting are such an interesting mix of art and performance and comedy people that I think you would love them and they would love you. So – um, anyway, so um, one of the reasons that I am so excited to have Mimi on my show today is that, A, it's her birthday, and B, I feel like we are real comrades comrades in our arms. Because can I say we're weirdos? Are you okay with oh, that? I, I am I, I'm a proud weirdo. A proud? I mean, at this point, I'm a professional weirdo, which I never thought would happen, but which, it's true. Which, so I love, I love that Mimi is actually two, three years older than I am. Uh, and is equally or maybe even a little stranger and less inhibited than I am, if that's possible. Uh, and and I just like, you know, I just haven't met anybody like this. So I am just so thrilled. I mean, we're always around young people, right, Mimi? Um, for the most part. Yeah, or like the the people that are, yeah, like the people that we're performing with or showing, well, art. there's a lot of older artists, visual artists. Well, uh, let's see, for the 
people that I perform with kind of range in age from 20 to maybe early 40s at the max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And also, like, there just aren't that many women putting themselves out there like that at our age, at our age. So, um, but um, I did read a little bit about you because I just want to give people background before we really get into talking. Um, So anyway, Mimi is a hoop a hula expert. She, um, and I read this about you, you went to India. And um, tell us about that. Tell us how you got into hula hooping. Okay, well, those two things started separately. Before I started hoop dancing, I started dancing, just regular dance in the in the early 1980s. And I danced all the way through until I started having these injuries. And at that point, in the early 90s, I discovered yoga mm-hmm. and became a yoga teacher and ah. started studying yoga and Vedanta. And, ah. and so India is part of that journey. I and, see. Um, I actually went twice. And the second time I did bring a hoop and I hoop danced every single day while I was there. And wow. I could not get the hoop. Uh, oh, actually, you know what's funny? I brought the hoop on both trips. I now remember. But the Second time I hoop danced every day. The first time I tried to hoop dance at the Taj Mahal, but they wouldn't wow. let me bring the hoop in because because uh, they're uptight, super uptight, <laughs> super uptight. Yeah. And so, anyway, yeah, I think yeah. that yoga, asana, and hoop dance uh-huh. and long form improvisation are all part of um, for me, as we were discussing before on air, a flow state, and mm-hmm. they're all things that can engender a flow state, which is the best date. I'm just biased that way. Mm-hmm. So you found something really, really satisfying. And, and that's amazing that it's such an odd, an odd or atypical, uh, you really uh, went to some lengths to really, you know, you put yourself out there so you could really discover what makes you happy, I think. And uh, I also just want to say to our listeners, because I guess the easiest way to say what your claim to fame is, is that you were on the full season of the Chris Gethard show, which was recently on Fusion, and you hula hoop for like an hour or however long the taping. You're just there hula hooping the whole time the show is on, right? Is that yes. right? And then they cut to you, or yeah. Well, I'm in the background of a lot of shots, and sometimes, yeah, they're, you're just there. there, like a live performance, well, like a live. Yeah, it, it, there is no way to categorize what it is, but but um, well, that's there a, is. I mean, I, what I, is it? I also um, did the same thing during most of the uh, run at Manhattan Neighborhood Network, right? Uh, so cable access, and early on in that, there was a blogger in New Jersey who called me kinetic wallpaper, which is ah, the best. that is great. That is really great. That is really great. Well, anyway, I'm really glad that we're in the same room here. And um, so, you know, um, I just want to find out a little bit about your background. You were saying, like, how did you get, were you in, were, did you say, like, Jesus, where the hell are you from? And how, you worked on Wall Street? Well, I am a super, super weirdo, as you say. And I, I just want to make a parenthetical that this idea of searching out what makes me happy comes from being devastatingly despairing. Mm-hmm. which, you know, I've experienced a few times in my life because mm-hmm. um, I, early on when I was a young child, I knew what I loved, but somehow I got thwarted or distracted from that to the point that I didn't really know what to do. So I am uh, an art school graduate who wandered into the advertising field, made very little headway in it, decided I hated it, and wound up going into Wall Street, which is out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, even mm-hmm. worse culturally and just certainly not for me, but I had so much low self-esteem at that point that I thought, well, being there is going to add something to my repertoire, improve my character, sure. which is a joke. and uh, <laughs> Improve their character, well, maybe. no, it was... What did you do on Wall Street? I started out as a registered sales assistant and... My goal was to become a trader, and I became a trader. Wow. So for 12 years, I traded over-the-counter wow. and foreign uh, equities and dollar-denominated convertible bonds. Wow. 
And you learn, you just learn that on the job, sort of. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I mean, we are so, so similar, I think, because I feel the same way. And uh, I worked in advertising. Did I mention that? No. And I, yeah. So you know. <laughs> I worked as an art director for 25 years. Wow. I've said this on the show, Billy. They must be sick of hearing about it. But me too. I sublimated. I tried to sublimate my whole personality to fit in. And it was always, I was always failing. And it was really hard for my self-esteem. But I wanted to have a stable living. Is that what you found? You got a stable living? Oh, totally. Did you make good money? You make a lot of money? Well, I didn't make a lot of money. I made good money. My, my thesis at the time was, even if I was a so-so mid-range or below earner in Wall Street, the numbers were just higher in Wall Street, so I would make a decent living. Right. And that turned out to be true. I'm, as you say, I am old enough to remember a time when a guy could sit across the desk from you and say very blatantly, um, why, should I, why should I pay you as much as I'm paying Joe? He's married and has kids and lives in the suburb and Ab- has a mortgage. Absolutely. And I'd say, well, if Joe's last name was Rockefeller, would that mean you wouldn't pay him at all? Because I don't even understand what you're talking about. Pay me money. But they you know, didn't. No, I, I, you know, I, I remember. So I I was always looking for that extra dollar. So I, I job hopped a lot and Mm -hmm. I was always looking to break into six figures and, you know, I kind of did break into six figures, but by that point I was really a mess and I wound up getting into this relationship with a guy, which was weird from the start. And you know how you just know from the beginning, something is bad. And but I wanted to, I mean, I really hated my life so much. I built up a little fantasy in my mind of what this could be. We could be right. like the Nick and Nora Charles of, <laughs> of, of, of S&M what or something What was your life like, like? What was your life like? You, you're saying it was horrible. What well, was it like? Was see. it working all the time? or I was trading foreign stocks. So I was getting up around uh. four in the morning. And I was also sometimes staying up till one in the morning because we it was a fairly small firm and we traded Japanese English, Dutch, Swedish, you know, it's it's all these Mm -hmm. different stocks. And then, you know, at six in the morning, I'd update my boss because he had uh, institutional clients that he would call at 630 and Mm -hmm. tell what the news was. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that we did is defunct now because of the Internet. Right. Right. Exist at that time. And or it existed in a very, you know, right. Early, early stages. I also was a danceaholic, so I would rush out of the office madly at like 4, 4.30 in the afternoon and rush to a dance class, and I was dancing 10 to 15 hours a week. Wow, because, what kind of dance? Uh, it, well, it started out with Dunham Technique, Afro-Caribbean, basically uh. the dances of the African diaspora, and uh. some, also learning wow. some of the culture. And Wow. And then it, it, it expanded to you know include... Ballet, tap, jazz, uh, modern. Wow. I, I was a, I was a, really. You just loved it. I just loved it. That I mean, when I was six years old, I discovered dance and I wanted to dance. And as I say, that that was kind of thwarted in my life. And so, what it's, happened? It's, Did your parents? Well, you know, my mom, who is eighty-five, and she's a heck of a gal. I mean, she. Your mom's eighty-five. So she yeah. was. Because my mom's been dead for, I mean, she died in her 80s and she's been dead. She died in those, she'd be like 100 or something now. Um, My mom was 23 when she died. Yeah, my mom was 40. Ah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so she was was young and she had some weird ideas. And I remember going to her and saying, Mommy, Mommy, I want to dance. And she said this weird thing, which has stuck with me my whole life. You can't, you're too young because if you start now, you'll have bunchy calf muscles. So <laughs> you have to wait until you're 10. What? I mean, think of what 10 looks like to a six-year-old. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, but I don't understand why she would say that. Is it really – Did I don't understand because – did I she, also is don't that understand. what she, do you think she really meant that or I, I don't know she didn't was she just trying to discourage it what were your parents where did you grow up I grew up in Little Neck in Queens oh okay and, and what did your were your parents together yeah and I mean, what did your dad do what did they do my dad was a CPA he had his own little firm mm-hmm. and my mom was at that point 
a housewife. And later mm-hmm. on, she went back to school and finished her degree and wound up working with my dad and then working for the IRS oh, as nice. a field agent. So yeah. she, you know, she was she's accomplished. accomplished. And what about your brothers and sisters? I have three brothers and we're all pretty close in age. The youngest is less than five years younger than me, although he passed away in 1999. Uh, so that is... Yeah, that's yeah. something that's hard. And he's the one I was very, very close uh, to. I mean, that is yeah. Actually, my dad him. passed away pretty early too. He was only forty-seven. Oh wow! I was nineteen. Wow, that's young. Yeah. So it, you know, you. We've, yeah. we've ridden the waves. I mean, I, yeah. I will tell you. What, that what birth order are you? I'm the oldest. Uh huh. And I have three brothers. Um, let's see. One of them, I said to him, and you know. I think well, what what I was wondering. Oh, I'm, I'm, no, but I'm just so curious. Like, did, what did what 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 attitude did your mother have about you? That's what I wanted to know. Oh wow! Well, but I, you were the only girl and the oldest, so I was just wondering. That's really interesting. I, mean, I don't want to really speak for her. Um, well, no, this is all your impression. But my impression. I mean, here's the thing. I think myself more than my brothers was that I was kind of. Slightly, I don't want to use the word victimized, but I'm going to use yeah, it. Yeah, no. I was slightly fine. victimized by the strange dynamic between my mother and her mother and her mother's sister uh, and also her own sister. So there was a whole ah, kind of the of whole women. women thing. Oh, man. And I, can I just ask you, are you Jewish? I am. Yeah. I don't know why I am too, but that seemed like a relevant thing to it ask. It is relevant. I mean, I'm just relating. I'm so relating. I can picture my Aunt Henrietta and my mother going at it right now. Well, well here's, a, here's the thing. My, my maternal grandmother um, and her sister, because there was a lot of sistery stuff going mm-hmm. on for several years. Did they live near you, by the way? Close enough. I'll, I mean, I'll they get were, into that. Yeah, I'm going to tell sorry. this little story yeah, and then sorry. we'll get yeah, to that. Okay, yeah. When my maternal grandmother was about 15, uh, she was living in a place at the time called Proskurov in what's now the Ukraine. And things were very, very bad. If you Google Proskurov pogroms, you're um. going to see some interesting and bad stuff. And her, there had been deaths in her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had an uncle who years earlier was a bad boy. He liked to drink. He liked to gamble. He liked mm-hmm. to go with women. And mm-hmm. the family said, shape up or ship out. And he's mm-hmm. like, bye-bye, and went mm-hmm. to the United States. Mm-hmm. So at this time, back in uh, 1921, he came back. Mm-hmm. And her, her parents uh, smuggled my grandmother and her older sister in a wash tub in an ox cart they drove to the bo- the Polish border and smuggled the kids over the border to wow. meet their uncle. And he brought them to the United States. Wow. So my grandmother was a gorgeous woman. And she had a beautiful, true mezzo-soprano voice. Wow. And she wound up sewing in a factory. But on the side, she would do singing for like the mm-hmm. Workman's Circle or the mm-hmm. ILGWU or whatever mm-hmm. in these, you know, some right. different kinds of events. Mm-hmm. And f- just to give you a dynamic, my mother also had a lovely, lovely voice. And when she was in high school, she made it into the all-city chorus, wow. which was a big deal at that sure. time. And my grandmother was not unalloyedly happy for her. She was a little sniping, a little thwarting. It's like this negativity, which I guess came from some kind of being threatened or jealous or whatever. Maybe, so I believe yeah. that that affected my mom. Ah, well, interesting. Do you think your mom was like jealous or like didn't want to like, is that what you're kind of thinking? Maybe I, that I she didn't she want you to like. she was emotionally deprived. I mean, another thing that happened is her dad died when she was eight years old. Oh. And it kind of uh, split up the family mm-hmm. a little. My at different times, my mm-hmm. grandmother moved away with the other sister, and then my gra- my mother was being raised by her grandparents. So um, it was all very strange. Yeah. And, I mean, people loved her. It's not that she was unloved, sure. but it was an emo- – and here's another thing. This greatest generation, right. they really bequeathed us their Michigas because <laughs> because the thing is they won't – 
look into their own shit. I hope I can say shit. You're right, you're right. Yeah, on this air. I mean, they will not, you know, look into it. They won't self-reflect. I agree. They don't want to do that stuff. And because of that, all the Mishagas has been visited on us, and we have to deal with it. I think you're right. I I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Was um, Did your parents have a good relationship? Pretty good. Um, Were they emotional or affectionate? Were they affectionate with you? uh, They were, and it was a... Somewhat of an emotionally tempestuous house, I'd say that. It's not, it was tempestuous. It was loving, but there was also a lot of anger. And part of the anger, again, going back now onto my father's side, my father had polio when he was two years um, old. Mm. And he had a, an unusual upbringing because of that. And one of the things, and it, I only found out about it later, strangely through dentistry. Um, There was Mm -hmm. a man who had – well, they told my my grandmother, his mother, that he would never walk. But he Mm. was two, so he figured out a way to walk using his stomach muscles. But they said, well, that's fine, but he still won't be able to walk because as he grows, this other leg isn't going to grow. Mm. There was a man who – a doctor who had developed – an experimental technique called bone stretching, Mm -hmm. which was kind of horrible. I mean, you'd go into surgery, Mm. your leg would be broken and the bone separated and Mm. they put other bone material in and let it heal. And then they would do it again after it was all healed. So you had a series of these operations. And my, what I found out through dentistry, because dental implants are actually based on that Mm. guy's work. Interesting. Is that 98% of those, people who went under that experimental surgery regime, it failed. And my father was in the 2% of the successes. Crazy. Yeah. So did he did he walk with like a little limp? Or? A, a big limp. But he was so dynamic and charming that a lot of times people didn't even notice it. I mean, mm-hmm. one leg was just bone with skin over it. Mm-hmm. And the foot was smaller and he had a special well, shoe on so that side. That's so fortunate, though. Was he able to get around okay? I mean, it wasn't... Well, he had to work at it, but he... He did. I mean, he swam, he rode a bicycle, he he was very dynamic. And part uh-huh. of the reason for that is that he was sent to what was at the time called a school, charity school for crippled boys. Mm. I mean, that was the terminology at the time. Mm-hmm. And instead of coddling people and saying, oh, you poor little crippled ah. boy, they had to make their beds, they had to take care oh, of themselves, and what? they had to play sports. And like my dad was a, a baseball star because there were people who, oh. if they happened to bunt, would have to literally crawl to first base kind of thing. Oh, so but that's was, lovely, actually. It, it was, that's a really nice thing to hear. Yeah, it was you know? lovely. It was tough. Well, the, the point is that both of my parents had these backgrounds. My father was born in 1925, and my mom was born in 1930, and Things were real different in those days. So they no they had to toughen it up and mm-hmm. like suck it up was not an expression then, but that's how they lived. And right. then they swept all their emotional garbage and crap under the rug and you know yeah, and later just to had be it discovered around. by us. Right, and just put it on the bookshelves <laughs> right. for you guys. So what were you like in high school? What were your what what was high school like for you? Oh boy. Not not great. I would say not great. Um, I, you know, I I uh, was in the younger part of my class, mm-hmm. and in junior high school, after some tests, I, where did you grow up, by the way? Um, I lived in Manhattan, Stuyvesant Town, until I was eight, and then we moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia. So, okay. suburbs, so you, you Jewish suburbs, a, like I, Long Island, same thing. So, but you had a slightly different. I mean, there was a thing in New York called um, special progress. You would take a test in the sixth grade, and if you got over a certain mark, you could pick whether to take two-year SP or Mm three-year SP in junior high school. And two-year was an accelerated, so you would take all three years in two years. Mm -hmm. And three years was enriched. And being a uh, slapdash person, which I still am, I'm a quick study, but I don't really like to study kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Right. I, and I mean me, I chose two-year. I'm like, well, that sounds good. Let me just get it all over with. And my parents agreed to that, which is insane, Mm -hmm. because I was 16 when I graduated high school. Mm. And so I was having to deal with a lot of things through 13, 14, 15, 16, through those years that I was not ready for. I made a heck of a lot of bad decisions, and Mm -hmm. I had heck of a lot of traumatic, you know, Pretty bad stuff like, going on. What kind of, can I ask? Well, 
Well, you can ask. I, I'm not sure I'm going to answer because okay. that could be for another, you know, there, there would be a lot of triggering things in this. And Good. Let's, let's not, not talk about it. it. <laughs> so, no, no. Let's but, not talk about it then. The but like things that, that you – okay, but I, you I c- we can – you guys get it. I mean you get that. Like that's heavy stuff and uh, – I mean I could say okay. sex, sex and drugs and rock and roll all played a part in it. So okay. I definitely became uh, – an experienced person, and that was those also years. what those were the late sixties. Yeah, so yeah, so you must have because um, just even being just a few years younger than you, I used to think, God, I wish I was just a little bit older so I could go to all those concerts and go camping and sleep outside. So just even being a couple years older and having some freedom, I, I had no freedom, but having a little freedom, you there was a lot of up. Options, you know, because, um, you know, I mean, it's weird. Like acid was really popular in high school and Been stuff there, like that. that. I mean, yeah, all that stuff. I can, I can list you some kids. drugs that I did between the ages of 13 and 16. Marijuana, mm-hmm. which at that time was totally different from the way it is now. I mean, it was much weaker and not. But it was still. Uh, so illegal. Well, it was illegal, but it was. That didn't even – do you think that really occurs to 13-year-olds? Um, no, but I mean I remember in those days being really paranoid and like now I'm like uh, – Well, now it's on the verge of being legal. Yeah, now I'm like, well, we're not, who cares? But yeah. in those days you'd be really worried, not just your parents finding out. But, you know, we did go to the police station well, once. I mean I think I was reckless. Ah, uh, so I was, I was uptight. Reckless. Okay, I, good. I mean I was scared of things, but I was also reckless. Mm-hmm. Recklessness is different from bravery. Mm-hmm. And did you get in trouble a, with your parents? Um, Occasionally. But, they, oh, I'm going to list sorry. drugs. I'm sorry. Then, I'm so, sorry. I'm so, so like, okay, go ahead. Marijuana, hashish, opium. Yes, I smoked oh. it. Um, bootleg barbiturates. Ah. Uh, amphetamines. Also pure like meth. Mm. which nobody really knew at the time, or we had a different understanding of it at the time. Um, Let's see. Acid, um, mescaline. I just did some experimentation of really low-rent things like huffing glue. Um, (laughs) Wow. uh, And there was another, like, a cleaning fluid called Carbona. I mean, these are – who knows what I did to myself at that time. Um, so were you hanging out with like a crowd of crazy people? You know, uh, not crazy, well, but I mean, were were you were you? Did you have a big social life with like a lot of? Well, there was more than one crowd. Uh-huh. Some of the and and the whole thing devolved. I mean, I with each of those drugs, I kind of lost faith with them. I, I mean, I had some very powerfully healthy instincts going mm-hmm. along with my powerfully unhealthy ones. In mm-hmm. that, I never got too engaged. I was somewhat cynical about the whole drug thing, and and I was doing it, but I was also scared. So the minute I would feel this is something that is really affecting me too much, I'd walk away from it because Mm -hmm. I I didn't like it, and I also Mm -hmm. looked around me. And initially, there was a whole hippie thing, and it was more about the music. It was more about the culture. It was more about experiencing all this. Mm -hmm. But little by little, it actually started to become more about the drugs in certain of these groups. And I'm right. like, I this is boring, and I Good. don't need to associate myself mm. with this. So I withdrew from a mm-hmm. lot of that because it wasn't fun. Fun, and it was weird. And, and I mm-hmm. mean, a couple of my friends became heroin addicts. Mm. So I mean, I was 14 years old the first mm. time I saw someone mainline heroin oh, wow. in a friend's kitchen. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, I am not intrigued by that at all. Yeah, it's, I mean, I took plenty of drugs. I never saw anything like that, actually. Mm. Um, did you have boyfriends? I, my first boyfriend I had when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And before that, I had sex partners and I had a couple of, like, intense crushes. But I wouldn't say, and sometimes those were the same and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it's the whole sexuality thing that I'm going to leave out. My early right. years you, of sexuality right. are a real right. big pain. So I'm right. going to drop that subject for <laughs> some other time or some other medium. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But when I was 16, I got my first boyfriend. And we had, surprise, surprise, an emotionally and sexually tempestuous two years together. Uh-huh. And during po- the ending time of that I was already at Parsons and also 
discovered that my father had cancer. Um. And so, you know, as that relationship went away, the whole relationship thing was just too fraught because the most important man in my life was Death. going to be dying. Yeah. And that really affected me a lot. Mm. Affected, was he sick for a long time? Um, well, he was sick. He lived nine months after his surgery. Mm-hmm. And so then I'd say the latter six months of that was, was dying time. Mm. He was just, you know, getting thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. Mm. And That must have been so hard. It was brutal. Was it hard being the oldest child and the oldest female in that role? Not really because – my mother did something pretty rad and and great at that time because mm-hmm. that was before hospice. It was right around that time that the woman who kind of invented or reinvented yeah. hospice was doing that in the United Kingdom. But my mother sort of did that because my father, having had polio and been through uh. hospitals, did not want to be in a hospital and she uh. didn't want him to be. So even though everybody at the time said he has to go to hospital, he has to go to hospital, she was like, no, because wow. a hospital is for when you're sick and are going to get better. If you're dying, it's not the place. So she took care of him wow. and she handled it. I mean, she learned to give subcutaneous injections when he needed morphine. She did everything wow. she had to do and what cared a, for him. And he died at home. What a great role model, huh? Absolutely. You must have a lot of res- I mean, I have a lot of respect for her. And then later on, when my brother was dying, I took on lead person in creating that, you know, his equivalent of that kind of experience for him. Right, right, right. I mean, when it's my time and and you say, well, what have you done in your life that's worthy? That's the most worthy thing I've ever done. That's really, wow. Wow. So let's talk about your life. You know, I'm so conscious of the time. Can you believe we only have, we were like halfway through? So, um we could we could we could make this like a marathon if we you know I'm it sure seems this like we've covered a lot of ground already. I'm cool with with skipping several decades. No, and no, but into it, the but now. it's kind of funny. Like, yeah, I like the idea of having a marathon and giving having a whole radio station giving us like eight hours. What do you think? Because <laughs> well, I'm sure people would love to listen to us chat for eight hours. Well, I mean, I could do it. I've been involved with marathons before, especially <laughs> that the Chris Gethard show did a. Uh, an election day special that was 12 hours. So it oh, it's yes. to do that. I, I would have brought food with me if I knew we were, yeah. gonna, you know, no, no, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that they're going to, I'm not, I'm not going to sell that idea. And right. uh, <laughs> don't worry. But so what's your life like now? Do you have a partner? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you have, did you ever get married? I did get married. Um, I'm friends with my ex. We've been divorced for quite a while about, uh, Wow, let's see. I guess this year we've been divorced for about 20 years. So, um, but we're friends. We mm-hmm. were married for about five or mm-hmm. six or seven years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and How that old were you when you got married? 35. Mm-hmm. And I haven't had, I mean, after we got divorced, we actually sort of dated for a while. Mm -hmm. So the last time I was really, let's say, in any way, in any semblance romantically involved with him was about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And after that, I just said, you know, for me, this area of my life has never really worked. And it isn't really about the other person. I have... uh, I have things inside me that that prevent me, I think, from being able to really fully experience or enjoy having that kind of an intimate relationship. I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel that my sexuality is at odds with my emotional needs. And for me, I was never able to, like, put it all together. And and I also think I'm a more self-indulgent, emotionally immature person than (laughs) the average female. And I'm kind of not willing... I'm not willing to play the female role yeah, in a male-female you know? relationship. It's- yeah, you know what? I think I'm a little bit like that. I think, I think. well, I mean, I met my husband when I was 42. And, um, you know, I, you know, and um, we only got married five years ago and we didn't live together, whatever. We didn't see, whatever. But um, I, I I, agree. I mean, I, 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 mean, I understand what you're saying because I – to like yeah you got to be like the girl right yeah and i i mean part of me is willing to play that role and there are fun things about that role but it is 
or roll. And when push comes to shove, I don't like subsuming myself into somebody else's deal. And I just, yeah. even if I kind of wanted to theoretically, I never was able to do it. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't understand what was going on so that there would be, again, emotional tempestuousness, which was really because I wasn't listening to my inner voices saying this isn't the deal. This, you're not comfortable like this. So basically, I I live my life and explore what it is I'm interested in exploring as a person out in the world by themselves. And I have, let's say, affinity groups rather than, you know, one intimate relationship with right. one person. I have affinity groups for each of these, you know, pursuits of mine, whether it's yoga or long-form improv or hoop dance or the Chris Gethard show or whatever. There's a group of people that I'm associated with in some way. But I'm also kind of a, a very um, social introvert. So spending time alone isn't bad for me. In fact, I need it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> That's so God, yeah, that makes so much. You make a lot of you make a lot of sense. You know, I think it's really good for listeners to hear this because, um, you know, I well, we all know a lot of single, especially single women, right? Who are who don't you know are can't answer those questions about themselves so clearly. I think like a lot of, I mean, I used to say to myself when I was single um, for a long time, like, why isn't this ever working out? And you know, after a while, you begin to realize, like, you're not playing, you're not what they expect. I, I, I'm not able to be that person. I mean, it's interesting because my ex in, 10 years ago found a person that he's been with since then. And, and the three of us have been together. They live in Europe right mm-hmm. now. And the oh, three nice. of us have been together socially a mm-hmm. bit. And I've I've observed the way she is with him and the way he is with her. And it's so so radically different from the way I was ever able to be with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very, uh, he wants to tread carefully around her because his emotional need for her is on a different level because she is his, you know, he got involved with sailing. He decided he loved uh-huh. boats and he got involved uh-huh. with sailing. What did he sailing, do, by the way? Uh, various things. I, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, me, I just want to have a sense point, of him. he, um, He's another interesting weirdo. Okay. But, but when he decides to do something, he does it on his own. He's a very um, – take uh, gets an idea and is able to implement it. So while we were married, he became obsessed with sailing, and he sort of visualized it for, for himself from a standing stop. He didn't know anyone who sailed. He didn't know sailing. He didn't know anything. Within a year, he knew sailing. He owned a boat, and that was – just all like happenstance and amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. I watched that happen. So people can creatively visualize because I've seen it close up. Anyway, in sailing, just like I guess in the military or in police, there is a chain of command. And let's say a small boat could have a captain and a first mate. And his relationship with this woman is like she's his first mate. Oh, he no. decides what he wants to do and she helps him mm. do that. And I just wasn't that person. Mm. I wanted him to do the stuff I wanted to do. And like when I met him, I sort of, he signed him up, not against his will, but it was like, hey, would you try this thing? I signed him up for a basic beginner ballet class because he had the most amazing metatarsal arch and he had the right body for it and this and that. And he was also 12 and a half years younger than me. So as a Ah. man, if he had gotten into it at that time, because he was 23, it could have actually gone somewhere but it was like he was interested he had a good time but it wasn't really his thing Mm -hmm. so there was a competing interest of his things that he was interested in and my things that I was interested in and then the things like art and painting and whatever that we were both interested Mm -hmm. in but no one was being helped meet to each other so it was two captains no first mates right really isn't gonna work that way right time but once like but with this woman subsuming her 
needs to his, she actually kind of became the boss of him emotionally. Ah, and yeah. It's, it's like cool. I got it. And I've seen a lot of other couples yeah, where it's like Yeah, that works. I mean, it's cool, but it's just not my gig. And you right. got to know your gig, and that isn't who I am. Wow. That's interesting how you are able to understand that and articulate that. I, I think that is a really, really common thing. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to get a sense of him. How much younger was he and what did he do? Twelve and a half years younger. Wow. And he is a, he's an amazing person because in his life, he's a whole – I don't know if you believe in astrology at all, but – I've had my chart done. I've taken it seriously at points. Yeah, okay, well, I mean – If we combine uh, solar and lunar astrology, uh, he is in lunar astrology, the Chinese astrology, born in the year of the fire horse – and he's also an Aries. So that sort of doubles and triples the intensity of that. He's an iconoclast and he's somebody who really needs to be on his own. And he has wow. designed his life to not be a boss or an employee throughout his whole life. He does his mm -hmm. own thing and it ranges from art to real estate to writing software to this and that. And he, you know, he has he's a, made a living and, and sailing and he makes enough of a living to do what he wants That's to do, and he's actually a, a kind of a role model for me. I was going to say, the two of you sound like a lot alike, but yeah. just... I mean, we have an emotional connection, and we'll always love each other, and we consider each other to be our own, like, we're family at this point. Right. And, like, his mom loves me, and my mom yeah. loves him. Yeah. But as a couple, it doesn't work. Right, yeah. right. So it sounds like... Um, I mean, some of it I'm identifying with it, if I can if I can say. Like, it sounds like you were brought up in sort of an emotionally uh, inaccessible family, right? Is well, that what I'm hearing? I, I mean, I don't know if I'd say an emotionally burdened family. I don't think it was inaccessible. So there were a lot of emotions. My, my needs were not met, and and I thought I expressed them, but that but it was ignored. I mean— did you feel frustrated by, like, how did you, like, when you look back on your childhood, how do you feel about, like, your parents treating you emotionally? Like, do you think, well, oh, they I were. I think they thought they were doing a great job. I totally got the sense that they loved me. And I believe that the ways that they hurt me were unintentional. They didn't really know what they were doing, but they were both young. They both both had yeah, a lot of young. things on their minds as well, other things, and their choices. I mean, they also didn't understand, let's say, that little children are human beings too. So, for instance, they never told me when my the oldest of my three brothers was born, they never happened to mention, you know, mommy's growing a baby in her belly or whatever. Oh, no, really? So I first found, and I was a year and a half when he was born, and the first thing I did, and my mother used to tell this story, like it's so cute and it just showed how smart I was, that we lived in Jackson Heights and it was the baby boom. So all her friends also had babies and I loved the babies. It's like, oh, here's a baby. Yeah, and I rock like the baby. Sure. Um, and then my mother was gone and I was mourning her. I mean, she went to the hospital because ah. in those days you went away for a few days and sure. she had never been away before. Mm -hmm. And then she came back and I was so excited to see her and I went in and there is a bassinet with a baby in it. And, <laughs> and my mom said I looked around for the mother and I just saw my mother and my grandmother and my dad. And she said I walked over and I kind of slapped him in the face like get out of here you. This is my territory. Slapped the baby yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean I was a year and a half. No I, I get I it. Him, but I I'm like you know Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy, when he pounced on the cab and he goes, I'm walking here, I'm walking here, it was like that. It uh -huh. was just, you know, right. this is my territory. So, right. Get the fuck out. Wow, that, but that's such a visceral reaction. Oh, totally. Well, of course, then I also stopped drinking out of a glass and I wanted a bottle again. I stopped walking. Uh, you have to carry me. To try to say, uh, excuse me, but, like, I'm the baby here because no one had ever explained it to me. Wow. And then she kept doing it because when I was in kindergarten, they say, draw your mommy and daddy. And I drew my mother pregnant because she'd always been pregnant. <laughs> so oh, it's kind of yeah. like your desires, you're trying to express your desires the way you do when you're 18 months old. And nobody's paying any damn attention to you at all. And, and then even with the dance thing was just like that. It's like... 
I wanted dance lessons. She gave me piano lessons because she had had piano lessons. Right. But I didn't want piano lessons. Right. So it's like, okay, well, so I, I did a passive-aggressive thing of managing to get through a couple of years of piano lessons uh, without learning to read music. I cheated by having a good ear mm-hmm. and mm. copying what the piano teacher did, but I didn't learn it because I didn't want to learn it. That wasn't my deal. I wanted to dance. So it sounds like your family had um, like a lot of kids and they just kind of treated them a little bit like a group maybe. Could be. I mean, yeah. I was always different because I was the only girl. Right. And my dad, you know, I had a pretty great relationship with my dad but again emotionally tempestuous it was mm-hmm. it was complicated i mean we can't yeah. really go into yeah. the whole thing Not but in I, our... I felt loved i was able to engage in interesting cultural conversations with them i was able to troll the bookshelves and read whatever i wanted and yeah know. i mean it sounds like you know you had a pretty you know pretty reasonable upbringing yeah. yeah they they did they did a decent i mean you know they're not perfect they're not right. they're just not right. but you know we only have can you believe we have 15 minutes yet and we haven't gotten to the age thing and i just am so curious about it so let's see if we can if i just want to understand cuz i you know i was saying like that we are similar in that we're when especially in the world of performing we're around younger people a lot and um um it's hard for i mean i how do you deal with it? How is that for you? Well, I will say that um, there have been times that I felt, again, frustrated and thwarted by the fact that, uh, well, let's say in hoop dance, it doesn't really matter because my partner is a plastic circle. And so <laughs> you know, it, that, my plastic circle doesn't really give a crap and, uh, about it, although it will respond to me based on my physicality. So if I'm tired or injured or this or that, that's going to affect it. But my age, just because of the way I look or this or that, doesn't matter to a plastic circle. Right. In terms of yoga, I mean, that's up to me. I mean, it's my practice and I need to address it. And, you know, when I teach, sometimes it's interesting. Uh, People who come in, if they look at me when, when I first come in the room are kind of like, ew. But by the end of class, they're like, that was really cool because I take them on the journey of the class and, and I've been teaching for over 20 years. So I kind yeah. of know how to express that journey for who is in the class. Right. I'm and, also for improv, it's for improv. And, and I guess by extension comedy, it's a little different because I've very frequently had situations where I've stepped out and somebody has looked at me with a feeling of, either fear or disgust or just I don't want to be in a scene with this person because I look like this and they don't feel comfortable with that. And for the first couple of years, it was difficult. But the way and also, you know, I'm not sure that it's wanted in in the community in general. But what I did was I started my own show Mm -hmm. and I wound up having all the experiences that I desired from improv by doing that. I've had, I mean, it is, it's an incredible high. It's, mm-hmm. it's a flow art and an incredible high when you can just add, a, add something and then your scene partner adds something and the two of you, mm. as you're going in real time, discover this amazing thing that, that would have been undiscoverable by either of you alone. Mm-hmm. And you and the audience are transported on the wings of this thing that you're making while you're doing it. And And it's such a high. I mean, I once sprained my ankle because there was a very uneven bit of sidewalk, which I later had those people repair. But anyway, I was just thinking about the set. And it was just so, oh, this was so great. Boom. Because, you know, you're walking and you're foot right. thinks it's level and it isn't and your ankle pronates and it's like bam I'm on the ground now <laughs> so it's cool it's like you're in the you're really in I mean performing is all about being in the moment but you're creating so much in the moment and yeah. then the audience is right there with you creating yeah. it's almost like oh yeah. yeah I mean the audience needs to create in a certain way it's one reason I will book storytellers and I will book characters on in the improv show but I don't book stand up in it because I think stand up and improv almost for the audience, use two different parts of the brain yeah, that, that yeah. doesn't really match up. Because in improv, they've got to 
also connect some dots and suspend disbelief and and do Mm -hmm. a little bit of work to be there with you while with stand-up it's kind of more spoon-fed. Right. No, I get get that. So do you think, um, I mean, you know, that is a great example. I mean, it's a theme of this show. Like, it seems like almost everyone that I'm interested in getting on here some way or another has made their own path. And, um, you know, that's something that I really have a lot of um, respect for, and I think um, there's a lot, lot to be gained from doing, like an enormous amount to be uh, that we can all gain from doing that. The more we do it, but um, do you feel like, like what, like maybe that you don't even have to think about age so much because you were you were able to create something that you're comfortable with, and people are involved in, and the rest of it doesn't matter. Well, I still think about it because mm-hmm. although I have a thing and it's a great thing and I love the thing and it, it enables me to do improv and watch improv mm-hmm. and love improv, I still feel that on the margin I'm invited into things less mm-hmm. and sort of have less opportunity in the rest of the improv world mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I mean it could be not a bad age it could be that yeah, it's right. me personally <laughs> which is you know everyone has their you know but if you look at just the way teams look in terms of age it's usually people in their 20s to 30s maybe once in a while there's somebody who's 40 except for the you know people who age into it because they've been doing it for right. 20 or 30 years but I but started in my late 50s so wow yeah. wow that's that's so amazing so but but also i mean it's more male oriented isn't it sort of like i mean it's like age is one obstacle probably being females another obstacle well there's a, if if we want to look at it just in obstacles there it's a minefield of obstacles <laughs> yeah but, right but that's the, true there is headway being made in the female thing there is headway being made in the race thing and i will tell you that as a show runner even though my show is just a little crummy weekly improv show in the basement of a sports bar, it's still a show. And I make an effort to include people of color and I make an effort to include older people and any people who are like, I I want a diverse show. And sometimes it's just not possible because, again, the preponderance of people are males in their mid to late 20s. 20s, But there's a lot of, I mean, I will go out of my way and book teams that either are all uh, people of color or have members who are people of right. color, I will book more. Right, Because right. I want to just, you know... Get, get that get mix. This, get this thing because we are... We, I mean, it's the only area when I was involved with dance, even though that was younger people, there wasn't the stigma of being old in terms of the... Especially while I was involved in the African diaspora dance, and that may be slightly different. And the older people were revered, and it was not... It was not a separated thing. In yoga, it's not a separated thing. In hoop dance, it's not a separated thing. It's only in this, you know, comedy and improv scene that it seems to be really it, stigmatized to be an older person. I fuck that is basically my, you know, yeah, if, see, I can't, if I don't have power over it in a different sphere, I, I guess I created see, my own sphere. See, but I do feel left out to go to your original thing. I mean, I would love to be invited more. So if anyone is hearing this and wants to invite me into a practice group or a team or a show or whatever, invite me because I love invitations. So thank you in advance. <laughs> Do you, Yeah, no, I know. Cause like, um, you know, like if I go to an open mic, it's a lot of young men and I wind, I mean, I wind up feeling like, Oh God, they don't want me here. And then see, I would like, I really have got start hitting some open mics cause I, yeah, Love you'd be to great. Talk, as you can tell. No, and, but you would be great. And my attitude about being See, this a is... different person in that situation uh-huh. where you have all the control because you don't have con- with improv you don't have all the control. If you think you do, you are going to have a terrible no, improv set. You have to be very open and trusting and allow. So, but if I came in, I'd be like that's cool because all those young men, although they are quite different from each other, and I don't want to be sexist or ageist and say no. all young men are the same. No, or this or no, that. we're not saying that. All young white men, you're not all the same. You're unique, beautiful little stars, just like your mom and dad always told you. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I'm definitely 
on so many levels just going to bring something different. So I don't have yeah, to worry yeah. if they've killed or if they haven't killed because I will walk out there and I'm going to bring another flavor. And that is something great. I, mean, I think I, I so too. That. I think so too. You know what I'm thinking? You know, you. I think that maybe part of my problem is that I am um, – I've got some old leftover stuff – irrelevant stuff about being judged as a female because like my role growing up is always the friend of the pretty girl, the best friend of the pretty girl and like going out and socializing and just playing my role, you know, the, you know, whatever. But, but still having a friend who is like the value, the, the female looks as um, what's the word currency is something that I have an awareness of. And I wonder if that's part of a problem, some awareness of maybe something that that's hurting that's hurting me oh, or sure. keeping me back. And I wonder if you're a little more freer of that if you if you don't, you know, if you don't if you, well, you're so also so comfortable in your body and everything like that. You well, know, I'll, I'll say that really like resonates with me, and I understand what you're saying, although my experience was different and. Because of that, I mean, I think that my feeling about being a beautiful, sexy, young woman is that while theoretically it should have brought a lot of opportunity, for the most part, it brought me nothing but pain. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was always like railing against and rebelling against what, what my role was because my role was not the best friend of the pretty girl my role was the pretty girl no no i wouldn't say that i would say that my role was always the weirdo uh-huh sometimes the whore the shunned person uh -huh. i i had a it was messed up we i mean trigger warning trigger alert i will okay. actually give you a non-trigger story to express this okay when we I, have five minutes okay but go it'll ahead. be a short story when okay. i was in grade school i think it was the fourth grade our fourth grade class put on Hansel and Gretel. And strangely, we didn't have auditions. We did a class vote. That's how the teacher wanted to do it. I was nominated for Gretel. I got one vote. I was nominated for the mother. I got two votes. I was nominated for the witch. It was unanimous. Wow. So I always had like an edge of being the strange person. Were you outspoken? I, I was outspoken with adults. I remember having mm -hmm. conversations with adults a lot when mm -hmm. I was a kid and feeling comfortable in that milieu and feeling less comfortable with my peers. And what do you think that was? Um, I think that they looked at me askance. So being looked at askance is actually nothing new for me. So I guess that's why I'm not letting it stop me, finally. Right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, that is one of the things about um, getting older that is really great is that you do, like, wind up, like, you're like, okay, this is me, whoever yeah, I am. You better start bringing yourself up because whatever the traumas were in the past, it's time to do over. And if you didn't think you were raised right, raise yourself. And I've been raising myself. I consider that I actually am also, in a sense, a young person because starting in my 50s, started my do-over. I think it started with Hoop Dance in, in late 2007, and that was, I hit the fucking reset button for real, and now I'm doing that part of my life. Yeah, no, I, I understand that too, because I started performing in my, I'd never performed anything, and I started doing the psychotherapy show in my mid-40s. Which is and, great, by the way. I've seen oh, it, thank so. you. I wanted to ask you, have you ever been in therapy? I have. I never really got so much satisfaction out of it, You're because... Not uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I I tried. It was okay, but I I think I'd rather heal myself in my own way. Yeah, you seem like such a self-contained person. I wonder if that's intimidating to people sometimes. I bet it is. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not making any judgment at all. And I can tell you from looking at your Facebook wall today on your birthday, I was very impressed how people really wanted you to know that it was a privilege to have you in their lives. I mean, you know, you don't see all of that every day. Good Lord. With, with, well, it's with Facebook. People. Take, take Facebook. No, no, but, ball, oh, you know. don't deflect the compliment. <laughs> okay, thank you're, you. No, I think you're, what I'm saying is I see you as somebody that people really like and respect. But at the same time, I also think that, you know, you, you're not afraid to, like, you're not going to cater to anybody. 
That's true. I have and to- you're not going to agree just to get along. That's true. Although I'd like to be able to do that more. Well, I mean, I think that's probably, um, as I like to say, we all have these charms and downfalls. Um, you know, I, I, I welcome that, but I'm sure socially that could, like people probably get intimidated by that because they don't know, they don't know you, they don't know people like you. And they're like, somebody's saying what they think? Oh my God, right? Is that yeah. what happens? Well, I, I do think that is one thread of the, and, of the tapestry, yes. And I think that's probably partly what makes you really great at improv as well because you can't be self-conscious in what you're thinking whatsoever and and in improv. And I think I think it's we're gonna we have two seconds left. And you know what? I'm giving you this birthday present and I'm gonna take a picture of you. We're gonna open it after we're off the air and then people can see what it is. I'm excited. How's that? That is wonderful. So yeah, because um actually we had pre- we coincidentally we gave away presents last last week on the show and we were all very we talked about how people are really are you going to open this right now do you think when oh, i give it to you absolutely because yeah you might see because you're the kind of person that will but a lot of people take the present and take it home because they're embarrassed that they're not going to respond properly oh you know i'm going to respond let's see what it is if okay it's a, if it's a large you know living beetle it's right. going to be one thing so <laughs> i think i think we're going to go out